morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Tuesday, May the 3rd, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. UNESCO says at least 400 journalists have been killed in the last five years across the world. We have seen an increase in digital attacks, especially against women journalists. Journalism is today under digital siege. An issue so pressing that it has inspired the overall theme of the World Press Freedom Day 2022. Free speech advocates in Malawi have condemned the arrest of a nurse for insulting President Lazarus Chakwera during a WhatsApp debate on governance. The guy who was arrested he was expressing an opinion which he was unfavorable to, to the president, but it's within his right to express such views, and he's protected by Section 35 of our constitution. In Guinea, a 39-month transition period proposed by the military junta is generating mixed reaction. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, at least 400 journalists have been killed in the last five years across the world. This is according to UNESCO. That says today's World Press Freedom Day aims to raise awareness on states' obligations to prosecute not only killings, but also threats of violence against journalists. Maureen Ojambo reports. According to UNESCO, since 2017, most crimes against journalists have taken place outside countries experiencing armed conflict. Aside from those reporting in wars, many more are being targeted for exposing wrongdoing and speaking truth to power. The agency's assistant director general for communication and information, Tofik Jelassi, says threats to journalism deny reporters of freedom of expression. Over the past five years, 85% of the world's population have experienced a decline in press freedom in their country. During the same period, 400 journalists have been killed while doing their job. In addition, global newspaper advertising revenues have dropped by half, severely threatening the survival of media outlets. Tafik says new technology exposes journalists' sources of news and thereby violating their rights to privacy and freedom of expression. The digital sphere has provided the new tools to those who wish to silence free expression, dissent, and investigations into wrongdoings. We have seen an increase in digital attacks, especially against women journalists. Journalism is today under digital siege, an issue so pressing that it has inspired the overall theme of the World Press Freedom Day 2022. It is therefore essential to ensure workable technological and regulatory solutions so that journalists can exercise their profession safely with their sources protected. Threats of violence and attacks against journalists contribute to an environment of fear for media professionals and impact the quality of their journalism. Linda Bach is a quality assurance editor for Kenya's media house, The Standard Group. She says there is still intimidation in the industry despite efforts to guarantee freedom of expression. Linda is currently in Arusha, Tanzania attending an African media convention. Some of the challenges that uh, journalists face include assaults, attacks, sexual harassment, and intimidation. There are also some gains that have been made. For instance, Tanzania now boasts about uh, improved media freedom. Like today, we'll have uh, Her Excellency Samia Suluhu gracing the opening of the World 
Press Freedom Day. And also we can say Tanzania has witnessed expanding media space. The Director of Media Training and Development at the Media Council of Kenya, Victor Buire, says in East Africa, journalists still do not feel safe. And people are worried that while most of now this our constitution, Uganda constitution, uh, Tanzania constitution, Kenya constitution has uh, provisions, constitutional provision of press freedom and access to information, that in practice this seems not to be happening. The culture where media was seen suspiciously is still stuck with some uh, government technocrats. Buire says media councils across the world are meeting in Nairobi to address their challenges. So we'll be doing country analysis, sharing country exchange of information to see just how, and also we are, we are facing what we are now calling challenges, uh, emerging issues in media regulation in a changing world. People are borrowing from, for example, a purely self-regulatory system like uh, the Levinson inquiry in Britain showed that it hasn't worked. So we will be doing a comparison in this current uh, century, what is the best model for media regulation. Today's theme of World Press Freedom Day being journalists under digital siege highlights cases of physical or verbal workplace harassment by either colleagues or news sources. Globally, 30% of media professionals report such abuse. This and other threats often prompt journalists to cover less politicized topics or to leave the profession or at worst their own countries. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jumbo in Sacramento, California. Free speech advocates in Malawi have condemned the arrest of a nurse for insulting President Razaras Chakwera during a WhatsApp debate on governance. Malawi police say 39-year-old Chidawawa Mainje was charged with cyber harassment and faces up to five years in prison and a fine of up to $2,500 if found guilty. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre in Malawi. Chidawawa Mainje was arrested after using an expletive on the instant messaging service about how the president has done nothing to change the lives of people who voted for him. Police say Mainje's arrest is in line with the Electronic Transactions and Cyber Security Act 2016, which prohibits inciting someone online. Halina Mwaz as the deputy spokesperson for the Malawi Police Service. You can't enjoy your freedom or your right while at the same time you're infringing the right of others. It doesn't work like that. There should be a responsibility. So it's a criminal offense, and the rules are clear. So this is why we are arrested. At the next arrest comes a week after police in the capital, Ilongwe, arrested a 51-year-old man for allegedly inserting the Minister of Labor in his WhatsApp group post. Michael Gaiatz as the executive director for the rights group, Center for Human Rights and Rehabilitation. He says the arrest is a violation of freedom of expression. The guy who was arrested he was expressing an opinion which he was unfavorable to, to the president, but it's within his right will express such views, and he is protected by Section 35 of our Constitution. So the best that the police should have done is simply perhaps to provide advice, but this is somebody expressing their views. Kayatsa says there is a need for cybercrime legislation to be reviewed and at the same time clarified in some sections, adding that politicians could use the measure to silence dissenting views. Especially uh, Section 86, uh, which he, uh, is talking about offensive communication. I think that that needs to be reviewed. 
And also, they need, there needs to be clarity because in the absence of clarity, such provisions can be abused to target online users, which is worrisome. According to Kayata, more than 15 people have been arrested for contravening the legislation by speaking ill of government officials and associates since Chakwela took power two years ago. Another human rights activist, Billy Banda of Malawi Watch, says he feels the police are now being used to help shield the current administration from public criticism. The police is not entitled in any way to sound like they're protecting one particular individual. Does the police not able to look back? We had the former president, Professor Afrika Mtarika. He was insulted. He never in any way arrested or directed anybody to be arrested. Namaza says authorities are just reinforcing the law regardless of one's status in the society. Of course, people may have different opinions, but we are bound to ensure that the laws are being respected, laws are being enforced, so we are just doing our job. The National Organization of Nurses and Midwives in Malawi warned on Sunday that it will stage a nationwide strike if the police does not release Mainje unconditionally. The leader of the organization, however, announced later that the group reversed its position, saying it observed that Mainje was making the remarks in his own personal capacity and not on behalf of the organization. In the meantime, police say Mainje is expected to appear Wednesday in court. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. In Tanzania's Kigoma region, the presence of fishing activities in Lake Tanganyika has provided jobs for women, especially the fish and sardines businesses. However, as Eid West reports, many still face challenges in this male-dominated industry. When you are at the catchment areas of Lake Tanganyika here in Kibirizi, Kigoma, the visual you get is a large number of women in the area. Some sitting with basket full of sardines or other types of fish in front of them. Others are standing on the lake shores waiting for the fishermen from fishing ready to win the battle of buying sardines and other type of fish. It is a daily routine from early in the morning as everyone struggles to get sardine and other type of fish to go and sell. Many of these women depend on these activities to feed their families, as sardine vendor Tatu Haji says. She says that a little income of at least one and a half dollars she earned per day from selling sardine she uses to buy food for her kids. However, most here are small retailers with a capital of at least $10 where they buy sardine and other type of fish and sell them in the streets of Kigoma town. According to them, they face many challenges due to the poor infrastructures such as lack of refrigeration system and small capital as Bettina Francis, who is a fish dealer, explains. 
She says that sometimes when fishermen back from the fishing, they find fish started to rot because they don't have the equipment to store them. So they are asking stakeholders to bring them refrigerators so that the fishermen can go with the ice to the lake. She says that it is important to keep the quality of fish for better prices. Another sardine vendor, Aisha Beza, explains that they need to be recognized and the government should put proper infrastructure like market for them to run their business smoothly. Mwamvua Hussein, who exports sardine to U.S. and European market, says lack of modern fishing facilities fails them to get enough supply for the market. Mwamvua says that she gets orders from supermarkets in Europe demanding up to five or seven tons per month, but they deliver at least two tons since they don't receive much from the fishermen. According to Nazael Madala, who is the director of fisheries in the Ministry of Fisheries and Livestock, the government is working together with other stakeholders such as FAO and UNCDF to set enabling environment for women and other small fishermen, including putting sardine drying facilities and modern fish storage infrastructures. He says that they also encourage women to join in cooperative groups and then use the ministry's private sector desk that will help them prepare business plans and connect them with financial institutions for access to credit. According to locals here, Lake Tanganyika's fishing activities has largely provided employment to women and youth groups working in the value chain. But still, an average of 40 to 6% of fish products are lost due to various challenges. Reporting for Daybreak Africa, I'm Idu Weso, Kigoma, Tanzania. Daybreak Africa continues. In Guinea, a 39-month transition period proposed by the military junta is generating mixed reaction. Some civil society groups and opposition coalitions reject the proposal as illegal. The proposal also sharply differs from the expectations of the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS. The regional body routinely puts pressure on military regimes to quickly outline a transitional period that will lead to elections to return the country to constitutional rule. It also has a policy of zero tolerance to the forceful overthrow of a legitimately elected government. But Faya Melimono and his Liberal Bloc Party welcomed the proposed 39-month transitional period as reasonable. For more reaction, VOA's Peter Clotty reached Milimono in the Guinean capital, Conakry. He has taken into account what would be the best length of time to do whatever we need to do to succeed this transitional period. So on my side and on my political party side, also on my coalition side, we think that 
what is important for Guinea is the outcome of this transitional period. It's not as how long it's going to last. So we, we find reasonable uh, the, the time frame uh, uh, decided by uh, the leader of the junta. Since the announcement, how are the people of Guinea reacting to it? There are many coalitions, and some have uh, rejected uh, that time frame. But here is uh, something that we need uh, to emphasize when it is about Guinea, where uh, corruption, where uh, the, the, the favorite exercise of all uh, people who have uh, uh, contributed in governing this country. Today, we need to fight corruption in Guinea to, to move out all those who in the government have stolen money and took it abroad. If the same people have to come back again because we are rushing to go to election, it's going to be the nightmare for the majority of people in this country. But Fire, don't you think that the 39 months sharply clashes with demands of ECOWAS? We know that uh, we need the ECOWAS and all the international community uh, to come uh, to help uh, the country uh, manage this critical uh, moment. We do understand, uh, but we have to take into account the reality of this country. Otherwise, about 10 years ago, we were in transitional period. It has been the third time we are going through transitional government. How can we stop that instability in the country. We have to do things right this time. And if we have to explain that to the leaders of ECOWAS, of uh, African Union, of uh, all uh, the international community, yes, we are willing to do that. But this time, we don't want to rush to elections and come back 10 years later for another transitional period. That was Fire Milimono of Guinea's Liberal Bloc Party. He was speaking to VOS Peter Cloti from the Guinean capital, Conakry. A Nigerian rights group has sued President Muhammadu Buhari for blocking calls from 73 million unregistered mobile phones. Authorities recently began blocking outgoing calls from phones not linked to people's national IDs. Authorities say ID-linked phone numbers are a key measure against crime, but critics say the ban hurts trade and people who can't afford to register. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. A Nigerian rights group, the Socio-Economic Rights and Accountability Project, or SERAP, filed for lawsuit at the Federal High Court in Lagos this week. SERAP accuses the government of trampling on the rights of millions of Nigerians who have yet to register their mobile phones. 
It argues authorities did not follow due process of law before blocking the numbers and that the measure in itself is counterproductive. Kolawale Oluwadari is a deputy director at SERAP. This is more of a knee-jerk reaction that we've seen on the part of government using national security as a catch-all phrase for all kinds of actions that impact not only on the, the fundamental rights of the people, but even the socioeconomic rights that have been granted the people constitutionally. I can tell you there is no law that allows the government to do that. And so without any clear legal framework, it lends itself to arbitrary use. Nigerian authorities have yet to respond to the lawsuit. Authorities had given citizens until March 31st to get their phone numbers linked to their national IDs. The government says the measure will help fight corruption and tackle growing insecurity issues, especially in the country's north. Nigerians have been lining up to register their phones since the beginning of April when authorities began blocking calls from unregistered phones. But thousands of subscribers say the registration process has been slow. Among them is Abuja resident Mercy Fred Williams, whose octogenarian mother was one of those affected. The phone was her mother's only means of communicating with her caretaker and with Mercy. Normally, if there's an emergency, the girl will just use her phone to call. But now they cannot call. So what would do? What I do now? I call her every day to make sure she's okay. Experts say telecommunications firms in the country have lost about $2 million, mostly from voice call subscribers, since the ban took effect in early April. The Association of Licensed Telecommunications Operators of Nigeria says losses could increase unless the situation is remedied. But critics like Abuja resident Christian Paul also have privacy concerns. It's not supposed to be an immediate decision, a decision that comes with a lot of grassroots education. You don't tell people to do things, you know. You tell them why they should do it, you know. It's not 100% privacy. Serap hopes the federal high court will order authorities to reverse the ban. In the meantime, many citizens wait in line, struggling to get their phones registered. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. You're listening to Debrek Africa on The Voice of America. The families of dozens of detainees who are members of Sudanese resistance groups that have been arrested by security officers are calling on the country's military leaders to release their loved ones, saying that they have never been charged with an offense which they call a violation of international law. Some families say they can't celebrate Eid el-Fitri knowing their family members are suffering behind bars. A few of the detainees were freed Sunday night without explanation. Sudanese political analyst Jihad Mashamoun tells VOS Karo Van Dam that he does not believe the country's military leaders running Sudan will release the detainees anytime soon. Some of them have been released and it's believed that they've been released as a form of appeasement for the international community. And that is because envoys from the Troika countries have, were paying a visit to Sudan. Some of these notable detainees from the Dismantling Commission such as Wiki Saleh and Mohammed Zufaki, and even Khalid Omar, who is the Minister of Cabinet Affairs. They've been released a few days before the Turkey envoys arrived to Sudan. So it's seen as a signal that the military is trying to signal to the international community that they look at this point, we're open to negotiations, we're creating an atmosphere for negotiations. 
we're doing our best to accommodate the negotiations. But in reality, it's just a cosmetic appearance in front of the Troika state. The Troika envoy doesn't really amount to much. And do you think that some of these detainees were released because of the Eid holiday? The Eid holiday is a celebration. The Eid holiday, their celebration in their countries, such as Morocco, for example. The King of Morocco would release some detainees because of the celebration Eid holidays. And in other countries, rules generally, they'll do the same thing. Now in Sudan, this uh, release was done according to Warhan and his allies, that they want to create a facilitative environment that will encourage dialogue. Do you think that this call to release family members is going to be heard by the military leaders? And will they let go of most of them, if not all of them? In time, they would let them in time, but I don't see it happening. The military, again, they did this release as a cosmetic approach, only to show to the international community that they're committed to dialogue. They don't see this dialogue as credible enough. That was Sudanese political analyst Jihad Mashmoun, an honorary research fellow at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter, England. He was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Damme. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voanews.com. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.